We are in Matthew uh, chapter 9. Ryan spoke last week, so if you've got your Bibles, you can get them out. Matthew 9, you've got your Bible app, you've got, uh, you got your phone that you can Google. Matthew 9, and we're going to be in verse 14. And so let me kind of set up what we're talking about tonight. Is, uh, we're really going to be talking about kind of what it looks like, <clears throat> excuse me, what it looks like to have a Christian faith. And Jesus is going to be talking through it a little bit. And he's going to use this analogy, and it has a lot to do with um, romantic relationships, specifically marriage. And it's interesting, this last week I was speaking to a friend of mine who I was kind of just hanging out with, getting to know. Uh, he's, a, he's a part of one of the other ministries here at Seacoast. And, and so we're, we're chatting, getting to know each other, and he asked me, well, how did you and your wife, Amy, meet? And so I began telling him the story of, uh, you know, she was really pursuing me hard. Uh, this like, you know, is this a thing? And... And, uh, but no, we, we met at school, and it was her first week of her freshman year. We both went to Biola, um, where Jesus also attends. And so we both, uh, we met, and uh, it's funny, because if you don't know, there's a two-story Jesus painting there. Anyway, um, and so we were, uh, we were hanging out, and over like the, probably the first few months of her and I hanging out, um, I begin to get increasingly nervous about her. And the reason was because all the other girls that I had met up until that point, I had a, a checklist of like non-negotiables in which I will not date or marry a person unless they have these lists. And it was a pretty lengthy list. And luckily she did not have the same list or else I would have been in trouble. But I had this list. And so I'm going through it and I'm always finding things like, boom, you don't match this, you don't do this. So automatically within like meeting a girl, I would know, sorry, you're not it later. And so she was the first girl, right? You guys believe in that? Uh, they're like, I don't know, what's your name? Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, I was just watching you from afar. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, that's right, creeper. Uh, first three, first, first few months, sorry, I'm trying to remember before I got real stocky there. Um, first few months of us hanging out, I realized that she was the first girl that was like that had, was meeting all of these qualifications that I had, and I could not find a reason not to date her, which was terrifying for me. Because up until that point in my life, um, I was terrified of commitment. I did not want a girlfriend. In fact, the first night that I met Amy, we were hanging out with a bunch of people, and uh, she's like, oh, what's your deal? I'm like, I don't date Biola girls, okay? So get off me. And she's like, oh, who is this guy, you know? Like... And it's because I had some serious commitment issues. And she was the first girl that I went, oh my gosh, I, can, I think I can actually like see myself with her because I can't find a deal breaker. As bad as I want to, I can't find a deal breaker. And, and so I, in those early stages of our, uh, and actually probably for the first year, I had a lot of trouble committing. And here's the thing is you can laugh at me, but I know I'm not the only one with commitment issues in here. Mm -hmm. Is because... <laughs> I know you guys. I know what kind of commitment issues you have. You have commitment issues in relationships just like I do, in which you might be hanging out with them and thinking, oh, this is going well, this is going well, and then you just destroy it because you're afraid. You know, you're just like, oh, and there goes a the relationship, right? Or, or you have other commitment issues because that's why you changed your major 12 times in college because you couldn't commit to a specific uh, major. And most of us, we don't have a career yet or we, we have just started one because, man, we can't imagine doing something for the rest of our lives. That is too big of a commitment. In fact, this is hilarious, is my dad and I, um, and my dad, I would say, does not have commitment issues, but this just shows that all of us do, is him and I go to the gym uh, every morning together, and we've been going for like, I think, three or four years uh, every morning, and he has yet to get a gym pass. 
I sign him in every single day. It's $10 a month, and yet he won't get one because he's like, I don't I want to commit like that. I'm like, it's been four years, dude. It's $10 a month. And he's like, hey, man, I, you know, I don't know. We may stop going tomorrow. I'm not sure. You know, like, and so he's like commitment issues, right? All of us have these commitment issues. And so, and so all of us tend to stray away from really committing to something. Even if we know that it's really good for us, we, we oftentimes run away from it, or we're very hesitant to fully dive in and to commit. And Jesus is going to be addressing that a little bit in the passage today. He's going to be talking about the level of love and commitment it takes in order to follow him. And he's going to do it through this analogy, and it's kind of going to maybe take a couple turns, and eventually we'll get to where it all makes sense. Okay, uh, Matthew 9, verse 14. So here's how it starts. Then John's disciples came. So we, we find out we're kind of continuing on the story. Last week, uh, we had the calling of Matthew to become one of the disciples of Jesus. Well, now we have some other disciples, and they're coming up, and they're coming to Jesus, and they're going to ask him a question. And so to give you a little background information, John, with it, that it's referring to, is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, if you don't know, was like the forerunner for Christ in which he would come right before Jesus and kind of proclaim, hey, God's about to do something big. You need to get your life on track because the Messiah is on his way. So he's kind of the one that's saying, hey, he's paving the way for Jesus. And as he's doing that, people identified with his message, said, this guy is from God. He's talking about something that's legit. And so he, disciples begin to follow him around. People begin to learn about him or learn from him, learn about his beliefs, learn about God. And so he had, just like Jesus has disciples, John had disciples as well. And so these are the people that we're introduced to uh, at first. And then it says this. Uh, and they asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so here's what they do. They kind of challenge Jesus a little bit. And they come up to him and they say, all right, Jesus, we've been watching you. And you know, we hung out with John. We saw the way that he did things. And all of us religious people, including the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day, we do this thing called fasting. And so you're probably familiar with fasting, whether you fast for a diet or you fast for religious reasons. Uh, fasting for religious reasons, especially in this context, was in order to remind yourself of your dependency upon God. So as you uh, abstain from food, you'd use that time that you would usually eat as a time to talk to God. And every time that you're reminded because you have hunger pangs, uh, you will then reflect and you will thank God for how good he is and how dependent you are on him. And so fasting is a great thing. In fact, Jesus talks about fasting and we fast here as a church and as Christians. Um, we fast on a regular basis and Jesus calls us to do that. However, in this verse, he's going to talk about why him and his, or why his, specifically his disciples are not fasting. And we know that Jesus would fast. In fact, he fasted for 40 days before he went into uh, kind of begin his ministry. And so the whole text is not about fasting, okay? So don't like take anything away from this as far as fasting goes. Okay, so it uh, goes into, uh, where are we at? Verse 15, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? All right. Now, again, this is taking lots of twists and turns, but we'll get there, okay? Is there is some background information, again, that you need to understand to, to understand this text. And this is kind of a, a complicated text. So uh, what's happening here is, um, well, let me give you a background on wedding ceremonies. So wedding ceremonies for us are one day, right? Um, and you go, and they do the pictures, and people get married, and then they go to the ceremony, or to the uh, reception afterward. What is it called? Reception, right? Reception, that's what it's called. And... Uh, and they party, right? Have a good time. Woo! Yeah! Okay, there's movies made about it. It's ridiculous. Okay, and so uh, they would do the same thing, except their parties were seven days long. 
Okay, so they would have seven days worth of partying in which people would celebrate, they're stoked. And here's the crazy thing is the Jews who would maybe fast on a regular basis, maybe they would fast once a week, they would, not, they would abstain from fasting for that entire week, right? Because nobody wants to go to a party and someone is like, oh, I'm on my sixth day of a fast. Oh, and like, I can't believe this. Like Clinton, Trump, <laughs> right? Okay, no one does that, all right? So no one goes to a party and there's a wet blanket bringing everybody down. They're fasting, they're mourning. They're like, our nation's screwed, whatever. Okay, okay. Sorry, was, that, was I lamenting there? Okay, anyway. And so um, that's not what I'm gonna say next week, by the way, just in case you're wondering. It has not, okay, all right, all right. And so here's the analogy that's happening here. Is there is an analogy that there is a wedding, that there is a bridegroom, and that there are guests, okay? And so let me plug in all the players here. Is uh, the wedding is happening because the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is Jesus. Now, even more background information on this is you don't realize this, but the people who are hearing this said, wait a minute, he's telling us something there. Because when he identifies himself in this analogy as the groom, he is saying that he is God because throughout the Old Testament, we have this ongoing kind of uh, metaphor of how we are God's people and he is like our groom and we are like his bride and there is this commitment to one another and this exclusive love, which we'll talk about. And so, uh, and so when he says, I am the bridegroom, you are the guests at the wedding and we are at a wedding ceremony celebrating, he's identifying himself as God in this moment. And so here's what he's ultimately trying to say. When John's disciples said, well, why do my disciples not fast? It's for the same reason why you don't fast and mourn when you go to a party. It's because it's a time for celebration. And so while I'm here on earth and I'm among the people, it's a time to celebrate. It's a time to party. No one should be fasting and mourning while I'm here. But then he continues on and he says this. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Okay, so this word here, um, taken from them or, or taken away, uh, in the Greek actually has like a very violent connotation to it. And so he's saying that at some point, Jesus is going to be taken violently away from his people. And after that, that's when they will begin to fast. That's when the party is over. That's when the ceremony is done and fasting will resume. And you have to realize that this is probably a pretty big shocker because we look at this and we have the hindsight of the crucifixion and the resurrection and then the emergence of the church and the Christian faith and all this kind of stuff. But these guys have been walking around with Jesus and they're thinking he's like the Messiah who's going to come in power and he's going to rule and he's going to bring the kingdom back in restoration in Israel and we're going to be along with him because we're his guys. And so they have these like grand plans of what the future is going to look like. And then Jesus drops the bomb on them and says, actually, I'm going to be violently taken away from you. Now, let me give you, an, let me give you like a little analogy or, or how this would feel. It would probably be like this, and maybe you've experienced this before. It's kind of like dating somebody, and like you're hanging out, and everything is going great, and you're like a few months into the relationship, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I think this could be the one, you know? Like, I really think this could be the one. And so you're like, okay, we're going to have date night, so you text me back and forth, oh, I love you, I love you, okay, my goodness, okay, I'll see you then, oh, I'll pick you up, okay, bye. And so... You go, and you go to date night, and everything's going good, and at the end of date night, you pay. I don't know why, but you paid. And so you pay, and then they look at you, and they go, hey, there's something I've been wanting to um, tell you. And you go, uh-oh. I just don't think this is working out. Oh, no, right? Oh, what? I thought this was, is it me? Is it something I did? What happened here? And so they drop the bomb, the breakup bomb on you, and you're like, I did not see that coming. 
I did not see that coming. I thought we were on this path towards marriage, and then you break up with me. Same thing is happening here. Is Jesus and the disciples are hanging out, everything's going great, and then he says, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to be taken away pretty soon. They just go, what? There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of questions for them. And then he continues on. He gives us a couple analogies. He says in verse 16, no one sews a patch. Now, this is where it feels like it takes like a little bit of a turn, but it'll all come together. Okay, here's what he says. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear, making the tear worse. Okay, now this kind of seems like if you're reading along, you're like, what the frick? Like, how did we go from like a wedding ceremony to like Jesus taken away, and now we're talking fashion? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And here's what he's trying to say here, and he's going to give a couple analogies that are going to illustrate the same thing. First thing is, he talks about um, an unshrunken uh, patch put on a shrunken uh, piece of clothing. Okay, so you bought a new shirt before right? You bought a new shirt, especially ones that are made of cotton, and you put it on for the first time, and this happens to like 75% of my shirts. I wear it one time, and I go, wow, this fits pretty good. I really like this shirt. It goes in the washer, it comes back out, and I go, why am I wearing Ezra's shirt right now, right? Because <laughs> it, it shrinks, okay? It shrinks. So when you wash it, it shrinks. So you try to buy a pre-shrunk clothes. Okay, and so this, uh, the idea is, let's imagine that that same, cl- that same shirt that I have actually does fit after I shrink it. I buy, you know, an adult-sized shirt, and it works. And so I wear that shirt, and then I have a hole in it. And so I get a patch of fabric that has not been washed yet, and I sew it on there. When I put that into the washer, that little piece of cloth is going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's going to tear the, uh, tear the T-shirt that I was trying to patch. And that's what he's really trying to say. And you say... Totally. Okay. (laughs) Then he continues on. He uses a similar analogy. He says, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay. Same analogy, uh, or same, same idea, but different analogy. Here's what he's trying to say is. Back then, they would take these animal skins, right, and they would put the fur side out, and they would try to, like, clean the inside and get rid of, like, whatever the gunk is, okay? And then they would sew it together into, like, a a, a wineskin, into a pouch with an opening at the top. And then they would put wine in there. And when when the skin was new, it was still kind of elastic. And so when the wine would ferment and the gases would emerge, uh, it would be able to stretch and, and contrast with the wine as it's fermenting. But if you took wine and you put it into an old wineskin, which has already become hard and brittle, because that's what happens over time, while that wine is fermenting and it's expanding, it'll burst the wine, wine will spill out all over the place, and your wineskin is useless. Again, you're going, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's trying to give this picture of, listen, there was a way of doing things previously because remember who he's talking to. He's talking to these people um, who came from a, a Jewish background, or who are Jewish, and he says, listen, this is the way that you used to know God. This is the way that you used to relate to God. This is the way um, in which you understood God. But now there's a whole new way of doing things through me. I'm the way that you can know God. I'm the new way of being human. I am the connection to God. And so don't try to pair up old religion and this new way of doing things. Because what's going to happen is if you pair up this old religion, the old way of living, the old way of seeing the world with this new way in which I am bringing into the world, you are going to ruin both. Now, you may not come from that kind of religious background, but I think it still is true for us is because you may have a way in which you have lived your life. You do things your way. You live according to your own uh, system. You do what you want to do. 
And then Jesus comes along and he says, look, here's how you relate to God. And if you want to relate to God, don't try to put the two together because it's not going to work. It's going to destroy both. The only way that you can live this new way is if you start from scratch, if it's only me. It's all about me. You can't be like me and then like, like about Jesus and then about what I want to be about during the week. You can't be about religious systems in order to try to please God and make him happy by being a good person. No, 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 no. He says it's me and only me. You can't put me with any kind of other belief or system or way of living. And so uh, Jesus is, going, is giving us this analogy. So that's the, that's the analogy, but I think we can also deduce something from the first analogy. So there's a few things that are happening here. One is he's showing us, listen, it's about me, and it's only about me, and he shows us through wineskins and cloth, but he's also showing it through the analogy of the bride and the bridegroom. Let me see if I can make some sense of this. Uh, we said in, in the passage, he's, God is, er, er, Jesus is saying that um, by equating himself as the bridegroom that he is God, but in that analogy, we also see that he's showing us how we are supposed to be in a relationship with him. And so here's one of the learnings that we can take away. First one is this, is following Jesus, just like marriage, is both a love and a duty. So if you're, if you're following the analogy, Jesus is saying, um, when you follow me, it is a lot like marriage. A lot like marriage. Because marriage only works if it is a love and it is a duty. So think about this. If, uh, if marriage was only a duty... And you just had a checklist of, okay, here's what I need to do in order to uh, be married, in order to have a healthy marriage. And so they put together a calendar and a checklist of things. And so your checklist looks something like this is, uh, you know, Monday we hang out and we watch TV together. Uh, Tuesday we go on date night and maybe have some sex. Uh, Wednesday we have family night. Thursday, sex again. This is my calendar. This isn't hers. And, um, <laughs> sorry. I'm just saying, this is, I, this is hypothetical. I'm throwing this out there. It's fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Amen. Now let's pray, huh? Let's pray. Woo! You didn't know this was going to turn into a sex series, but it did all of a sudden. This is crazy. Um, if this is what, like, if this is what our, if this is what our marriage consisted of was, like, a, a list of responsibilities and duties, um, I don't think our marriage would last very long, right? I don't think that uh, we would be able to stay together. I think that there's got to be something else. It can't just be all the duties that we have. You also have to have love, right? The, your marriage has to be uh, fueled by love in addition to also duty. So if, um, if we only, Amy and I, if we only did things um, when we felt like it, one, I would never, ever, ever have to go to Disneyland again, okay? Because I've never felt like going to Disneyland. Or if we only hung out like when we felt like hanging out, um, we probably wouldn't have that much connection. If we only had sex when she felt like it, I would be sad, right? This would be a bummer of a time. And so, is this getting too real for you guys? Is, this, is Amy like hiding somewhere right now, just, whoo, okay, I'm going to pay for this later, uh, okay, <laughs> anyway, uh, so, where were we, oh yeah, sex, okay, um, <laughs> 
Okay, so if you can follow the, if you can follow the, the example, love in it has to be fueled by love, but it can't be exclusively fueled by love. It also has to have a sense of duty, but it can't be exclusively duty. It has to be a balance between love and duty. And so Christ, when he gives this analogy, he's saying, listen, your faith has to be the same way. It has to be both a duty and it has to be a, a love because um, if it is only a love, you're only going to follow Jesus when you feel like it. And that's a horrible relationship to be in, is you only worship, you only read the scriptures, you only pray when you feel like it. Well, that's not going to get you where you want to go. But if you're only a Christian because you feel like it's your duty, because maybe out of fear or, or, or whatever else, uh, insecurity, whatever it is, the reason why you, you do it is because you feel like you have to, well, that's not going to get you a good relationship with Christ either. There has to be both a love and a duty. Okay, next learning is this, is, is Jesus completes us. When Jesus says that he is the bridegroom, what he's actually saying is he is here to complete you. Which every time I hear that and I think about that, I know that this is super immature, is I think of um, Dr. Evil and Mini-Me um, from Austin Powers. I don't know, this is probably too old, but it, every time it comes in, you know, where it's like, you complete me. No, it's just every time. I, okay, I even... <laughs> is I even, when I was studying and I put that point down, I went and Googled, I went on YouTube and I was like, ah, oh, I missed that. Is it you complete? Okay, anyway, if you haven't seen it, okay. Okay, um, in, order to, in order to understand this and how this kind of uh, plays in with, with marriage, you have to first understand why God created marriage and kind of the purpose that he had in mind for it. And so if you go back to Genesis, you get uh, you get God's original intention for marriage and also for gender and how those two relate to one another. And we've talked about that in depth before, but let me give you just a quick overview. Is In Genesis, in the first couple of chapters, you have the creation narrative in which God creates all these different things around. So he creates the universe and he creates uh, everything on the earth. He creates plants and animals and he goes through uh, a... a, a, a a series of creation, and then finally gets to the pinnacle of creation, which is mankind. And he says that we are the pinnacle of creation because we are made in his image, right? We're very different than any other creation out there. And so when we get to this place, we find out that first he, he creates Adam, and after all the other creations, he says that these creations were good, but then when he gets to Adam, he doesn't say that it was good. And so you go, okay, well, what, what happened with Adam? Did he mess up? Like, did something happen there? No, no, no. He didn't mess up when he created Adam. He just wasn't done yet. Because Adam, when he was created alone, was incomplete. He needed his other half. And so we see in Genesis 2.18, it says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so when Adam was created and there was no Eve yet, it says that um, it was incomplete, that he was missing something, that his, the creation was not good yet. And so when we see in, in, 20, in verse 20, it says, For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And so the picture that we have here is that God has created men and women differently, which is so politically incorrect these days, but he's created men and women differently. And then he says, and when those two come together into a, a marriage, that there is something unique that happens. The scripture says that they become one flesh, but it's actually more than just a physical one flesh. It's actually like an emotional and spiritual one flesh because there are these different attributes of God. And we see them in men and we see them in women and they are different from one another. So when they come together, they're really reflecting um, who God is. 
And so we actually become, in a sense, a complete, our, our complete selves um, when we are in that marriage, when we have that marriage between men and women. Now, this isn't to say that we are, are no good when we're single or uh, that we're, we're useless. No, no, Paul, the scripture, Jesus, they all talk about that. And they all talk about um, the incredible gift it is to be single and the works that you can do. But uh, the more complete when we are in a, a marriage. And so this is kind of interesting to me. Because if um, the illustration is that Christ is the groom and we are the bride, what he's really saying is, when we come together, you will become the complete you. You will become more of your true self than you are without me. And so the rejection of Christ would mean that we are actually rejecting who we truly are. We're rejecting who we were created to be. We're rejecting the other half, ultimately, uh, of, of what will make us whole. And so Jesus, when he comes along and he Gives, and he gives the illustration that he is the groom. He's really saying, I'm here to partner with you and to complete you. Okay, uh, last one is this. Is Jesus, love is permanent. So when we think about marriage, we think about marriage, it's supposed to be permanent, right? It's supposed to be a love that knows no bounds. It's supposed to be a commitment that is for a lifetime. It's supposed to be a, a commitment of, or a faithful relationship, where there's no conditions and no limits. But here's the problem, is a large majority of us have seen marriage, and we have not seen marriage go that way. And so when we think about this idea of the groom and the bride and this commitment, we have a really sour taste in our mouth because all the marriages that we have seen have been a disaster. It makes us upset a little bit. But here's what's crazy about this, is why are you upset about marriages that fail? Because you know that that's not the way that it ought to be. There is something within you and something within me, whether you're a Christian or not, that knows that marriage should be a commitment that does not end, that it should be a lifelong commitment. Where does that commitment come? Where does that idea of this lifelong commitment come from? Well, I would say that God has put this desire in us in which we know that there should be a permanent love bond between these two people. And it's not like God saw marriage and how it was operating and went, oh my goodness, that's a great analogy for how I, can, I relate to, to my people. No, 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 no. He created marriage in order for us to get an image of what it looks like to be in relationship with him. And so when we think about this marriage of the bride and the groom and us and Christ, we're supposed to see a love that is never ending. And not only is it never ending, but it's exclusive. Totally exclusive. When you think about marriage... You think about, let me give you an analogy. Let's pretend like I went to Amy, and as we're getting ready to get married, I say, listen, here's the deal. On our wedding day, I want to commit to you to be exclusively yours in every sense of the word. I want to be exclusively yours physically, uh, emotionally. I want to be financial. Every aspect of my life, I want, to be exclu- I, want, I want you to be exclusively mine. And she goes, okay, great. That sounds good. That sounds like what marriage should be. That sounds healthy. I go, okay, but there's like one little caveat that I have for this. You're going to be exclusive to me, but I'm not going to be exclusive to you. You would say, you are a pig, right? You would say, that's not how this works, is when you're in a marriage, you're exclusive to one another. You don't just have this one-sided deal in which I exclusively love you, or you exclusively love me, but it's not reciprocated. No, no, that's not how this works. We have to be exclusive to one another if this is really going to work, if this bond and this love is going to work. Now, the modern person gets away with getting away from exclusivity of this loving relationship by having an open relationship, right? Where, ah, it's fine. If we both do it, then it's okay. 
whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Okay, he, maybe this doesn't make sense to you because you're like, whoa, swingers. Like, I don't know about that. But like, <laughs> let me give you a different context that may be a little bit more your life stage. Friends with benefits. That's what this is called. It's called being friends with benefits. Is I want to, uh, be, I want to be naked in front of you you be naked in front of me, but we're not going to have the commitment between the both of us. And see, that's like saying this. It's like, Jesus, here's what I want from you. Is um, I want all the benefits from you, right? I want you to bless me. I want you to help me when I'm in trouble. I want you to be there when I need you. Um, however, I don't want to be committed to you solely because I want to be able to chase some stuff over here in my life as well. And so a lot of us, instead of being married to Christ... In this commitment sense, we want to be friends with benefits with Jesus. And Jesus is not that kind of God. He says, I, I don't live that kind of, that's not, that's not the kind of love that I have for you. It's either an all or nothing kind of person. It's either you are fully committed and in love with me and we are exclusive with one another or we're nothing at all. And so that's why the, that's why the Bible like, has these very clear distinctions between I am a believer and I follow Jesus and I'm an unbeliever. There's no like gray area in between where I'm like, I'm sort of a Jesus follower. It's like, no, you're not. We're either together forever or we're not together at all. There is no in between because that's not the kind of God that he is. He doesn't do this friends with benefits kind of thing. Here's the problem is... You know what, let me, let me wrap it up with this. When I look back on uh, my own story and I look back on my life and I look back at all my commitment issues and all the stupidity, especially as I was getting to know Amy and, and, and how close I was to just screwing up my life royally, I thank God for him not allowing me or at least giving me a little bit of insight into not making one of the worst decisions I could have made, which was run away from the commitment because I was scared. That would have been, you know how people talk about like the one that got away? That would have been me for the rest of my life is, what did you do, Cody? You screwed up royally because of whatever your insecurities were, your fears, your lack of commitment, whatever it was. And I think a lot of us are in that stage right now in which we have the opportunity to either fully commit our lives and our relationship with Christ or to go the other way, to say, ah, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff that I'd rather chase out there Remember, the, the in-between is not an option. He doesn't give us that option. He doesn't say we can date and hang out and like fool around, right? No, that's not, that's not how this works. We're either in or we're out. And some of us are in this place in which we have to make a decision. Are we going to be in or are we going to be out? Are we going to follow him and be exclusive in an exclusive relationship with him? Or are we going to go and we're going to do our own thing? And here's, here's the thing that I, uh, I think makes sense to me. Is you may never have the opportunity to be in relationship with Christ again. This might be it. Your life may take a drastic turn and what you decide now affects the rest of your life and the rest of your eternity. Or you may get an opportunity to be in relationship with Jesus again later on in life, but here's the problem. You're gonna have so much regret and guilt and bumps and bruises along the way that you're gonna look back and say, man, I wish I would've committed back then. And I don't say this to, commit, to, to, to scare you. I don't say this like, ah, oh, you're going to go to hell if you don't do it. You know, it's between you and God. You guys, you, you work on it. You figure it out with him. But here's my deal. Is I am so glad that I did not run away from commitment when I was in my early 20s with Amy. And I'm even more glad that I didn't run away from my faith and my commitment to Christ then as well. And so some of us are at a crossroads and we got to decide which way are we going to go? Are we going to fully commit or are we going to run away? And I think that 
living a life without regret, living a life uh, in which I don't have to say that's the one that got away is the choice that I want to decide. But the rest, the choice is really yours. God gives us this freedom in which we get to decide what are we going to do? Are we going to commit or are we going to run? Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you so much for uh, just how, how practical and relevant your scripture is to our life, Lord. Uh, there is... Um, the stuff that we were, the stuff that people were struggling with 2,000 years ago is still the very thing that we struggle with today. And yet you have called us to be um, committed to you, to follow you, to be exclusively yours, Lord God. And some of us, we just, we want to live in two worlds. And thankfully, you won't allow us to. And so, Lord God, there's some of us who just need to make a choice. We're going to have to give up some lifestyle stuff. We're going to have to give up some some other commitments, some other things we may want to chase in order to fully um, commit to you. And so, Lord God, I just pray that you would, one, convict us. As scary as that word is, is that you would convict us of our stupidity. And I know that you've done that for me on pretty much a daily basis. And remind us that um, you have offered us an incredible relationship. All we have to do is say yes. So, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.